show on climate change. Brought to you by Hip Hop Caucuses. Think 100%. The problem, really, you know, that we and it, and it manifests in so many ways that that we have put ourselves into this place where human beings are separate from nature, that we are separate from all living things, that we are different somehow, and that our goals should be oriented around so-called human power. That's Tarahouska tribal attorney, climate activist, the founder of the GNU Collective, and a co-founder of Not Your Mascot. She is our guest today, and I am Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. Well, uh, I'm excited. So much for this uh, edition of the show because I have a dear friend of mine, um, Tara Hashka, um, who was a tribal attorney based in the woods. I mean, the woods of northern Minnesota. Uh, she is the founder of the GNU Collective, a grassroots front lines effort by indigenous women um, to protect the destruction of the Enbridge Line 3 Tar Sands Project. Tara, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm excited to be uh, sharing space with you, Rev. Yeah, no, I'm really excited to share space with you um, and have this conversation. Um, um, you have, I just want to say this starting off, that I said this to you off, off, off air, and I just want to say that for those who don't know Tara, Tara is someone who is, is an amazing activist. She's an amazing legal mind, uh, always at the forefront of the indigenous women's efforts, um, this indigenous efforts overall on the front lines of our movement, wherever there is struggle, um, no matter who it is, um, literally for our, for people of color across this country and across the world. But I told her, uh, she reminds me of a superhero. <laughs> she does, y'all, because she just she's always like there. She's just showing up, ready to go. And I gotta call my brother Mark Ruffalo so we can have you, Tara, in the next uh, Marvel movie. So that's my other task here to make sure that happens for sure. But for those who don't know you, who is Tara Hashka? I am an Anishinaabe woman from Kuching First Nation. That's right up on the border between Minnesota and Ontario. So I was actually born in International Falls, Minnesota. It's right across the lake from the reserve. So there's an international border that runs through the, the middle of the lake. And I'm American because I was born on one side and most of my family is Canadian. I'm Bear Clan and was uh, a lawyer out in D.C. For, for a number of years and did all the Capitol Hill things. And then I... Uh, Made my way out to Standing Rock Sioux Reservation out in North Dakota when they were fighting the Dakota Access Pipeline, and I kind of kind of haven't really come back from that. I mean, I've been doing land defense work now for the last couple of years, um, back in my in my home territory of, of Minnesota. So uh, do a, do a lot of a lot of different things, I guess. How are you doing? 
I'm good. I mean, I'm sitting, I'm actually in this uh, <laughs> random house and uh, a supportive ally down in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, we are currently on our way to the Navajo Nation to bring a bunch of COVID relief supplies. Um, we have a big truck that we filled up yesterday and have been collecting donations for the last month and very excited to um, be supportive and, and in solidarity with our relatives that are down south. We know that COVID-19 has decimated both the Navajo Nation and uh, Black communities. Um, talk more about how that how its impact is impacting the Navajo Nation. I think uh, COVID-19 has really um, pushed that underlying structural racism and dispossession and disenfranchisement into a very public light. So you're seeing black, brown, and low wealth folks all over the country that are being disparately impacted by it. And it's not just by, you know, the virus itself getting into our communities. It's about the fact that like we lack so much access to adequate healthcare to, um, you go into Navajo Nation, you're looking at places that have maybe one grocery store or one convenience store that's serving hundreds and hundreds of miles worth of, of folks that are oftentimes without running water, without electricity, um, that already had all these pre-existing conditions that were disparate to what most people think of the average American as. Um, you partner that with like this massive virus that's sweeping through the world and you end up with really, really um, appalling statistics of black and brown folks that are that are dying from this disease or, or from this uh, virus. And it's uh, I hope that it's really kind of pushing that narrative into the the public knowledge and sphere of understanding that hey, this is like this is not just about this virus. This is about all kinds of things around it that are already contributing to decreased um, life expectancy. Native Americans have the lowest life expectancy in the country that are forcing us all to consider, you know, what is actually happening in these communities and what is the um, equity that's present or not present. And then you add in, you know, the, the murder of yet another black man, George Floyd, and you see that, right? Like, so this conversation, I feel like it's just being, 2020 is just shoving it forward um, in a really big way that people can't ignore. I agree. And I just, I mean, you're in Minnesota, right? And I think that um, when we think about George Floyd, actually, what's your thoughts being from in Minnesota now? What's your thoughts about George Floyd? When that happened, you know, I mean, that was, um, I saw I saw it on the local news. And, uh, you know, for me, like, personally, that was just such a, deeply hurtful and painful um, video, yet another video in the long line of videos that we've seen over the last few years, right, of someone being blatantly murdered in the street by police officers. Um, it just, to me, it was so, uh, the lack of humanity that I saw on that particular law enforcement officer's face while that happened, um, and the immense you know, just compassionless, you know, for this human being that was calling for their mother and like begging to live, you know, um, it really, really hurt. And so when that happened, you know, 
actually a lot of our collective members, we left the woods and we went down to Minneapolis because, you know, we've got quite a bit of skills and, you know, wanted to share and uplift in any way that we could. Um, we were cooking for hundreds of people and marching alongside being told where to go, where to stand, where to sit, you know, all the things it was, it, it, it really, it, it hurts when it's so close, you know, geographically, but it also hurts just, just, um, feeling that pain and seeing it so obviously. And so there's, there's nothing that's, it was so unequivocally murder, you know? Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's being back in Minneapolis after being down here for that. It's, there's still all these beautiful murals everywhere and, um, pictures of George Floyd all over the, the streets. And it's, it's beautiful, but it's also, to me, it's just, it's so, um, sad thinking about how one person had to actually lose their life in this long line of people that have lost their lives, um, for this to finally bubble over. And yeah, I, I don't know. I'm hoping I get my stuff back today. Also, I guess on the, on a side note, my, um, I got maced and arrested by the Minneapolis PD and they took all my stuff and haven't given it back yet. They didn't even know where it was for a long time. I don't even know. They still do, but such a minor thing. The- no, but, but, but thank you for that. Of course, that solidarity and putting your body against the gears of the machine. Um, that's important as well. And I guess from your perspective, because you obviously fight for many things from indigenous rights to uh, climate justice, and we see now with George Floyd, racial justice. What's the connection between indigenous and racial and climate justice? When environmental destruction, particularly the expansion of you know the fossil fuel industry of extractive industry is happening, it doesn't happen in white suburbia, right? It doesn't happen in the high wealth neighborhoods in um you know, the, the more affluent places in the United States, it happens in places that are out of sight, out of mind. So that oftentimes means it happens on or near Indian reservations. It happens on public lands or it happens in low wealth communities that are almost entirely black and brown in, in cities. You know, the, the chemical plant shows up in a largely black population in, you know, Detroit, right? Like there's, there's a, the most polluted zip code in the country is in Detroit and it's a largely black neighborhood. Um, for something like the Dakota access pipeline, which maybe more people have heard of, it was supposed to go through this 90% white community called Bismarck, North Dakota. And, you know, there was some pushback of, Hey, well, we don't want that. You know, that's dangerous. If it, if it leaks here, like that, if it spills here and breaks, that could really mess up our watershed. And so they rerouted the pipeline south to go through the tribe's drinking water supply. You know, I mean, that is such a clear example of environmental racism and that component of racial justice, which is, you know, we matter and you don't, you know, or your people aren't as important as ours. Your lives are not as important as ours. And, you know, looking at um, human beings differently. We are talking to Tara Hofska, and she is literally on the road as we are talking. She is actually en route to support um, many of those in the Navajo Nation in regards to this pandemic of COVID-19. And one of the things, Tara, that even during COVID-19, 
the fossil fuel industry is still focusing on constructing pipelines. And so what are some of the current pipeline fights that you are engaged in? And how is COVID-19 affecting how you're fighting those pipelines and also the pipelines themselves? Honestly, what I've seen across uh, Turtle Island, and uh, this is not just from our own pipeline, you know, our own resistance to the Line 3 pipeline that's proposed from Alberta, um, the Alberta tar sands down through to Lake Superior. It's not just in our fight. It's also in the Keystone XL pipeline fight. It's also in the Trans Mountain pipeline fight. It's also in the Coastal Gasling pipeline fight and the Mountain Valley pipeline fight um, and all these different LNG terminals, so liquid natural gas terminals. The fossil fuel industry has essentially seen this COVID-19 pandemic and seen, you know, these social distancing restrictions and stay-at-home orders and all those things as an opportunity to double down and actually oftentimes increase the amount of um, activity that they're engaging in to propel their projects forward. So that means in our territory, we've definitely seen, you know, plenty of activity and um, this kind of knowing that it's very hard to organize and get people out in the streets when there are stay-at-home orders in place. It's difficult to um, try to gather in a, in a way that we might normally do because of our own, you know, we want to make sure that we're taking care of each other, right? Just like we saw with the George Floyd protests, you know, people are gathering and, and marching together, but we also recognize there's still a pandemic happening. Um, but I would say that, you know, I think from the perspective of continuing to engage, even as we face this, this massive, uh, new risk, I guess, um, is it is incredibly important that we don't let something like that slide, you know, that we do show up and we do figure out ways to stand together, um, and to expose the inequity and the racism and the, um, harm that's happening to our people and to our environment. Um, we've come up with some <laughs> I would say uh, interesting ways to to demonstrate against uh, Enbridge's line three. <laughs> Let's talk about that. You have actually come with some ingenious actually ways. First of all, what is that pipeline project? What does that mean? And then what are the, some of the direct ways you've been uh, fighting that that project? Enbridge's line three is a um, tar sands line that's proposed out of Alberta, um, the Alberta tar sands in Canada. It is a nearly million barrel per day tar sands line. That's what the proposal is for. It passes through here in this territory. Um, it actually uh, kind of hooks off from this from this old existing corridor of pipelines um, and is attempting to go through very uh, pristine, untouched wetlands through you know hundreds of watersheds. It crosses through over two hundred bodies of water in Minnesota, um, and then terminates in Superior, Wisconsin, at the shore of Lake Superior. So it's essentially a, a project that is intended not only to bulldoze through this massive tar sands line, but also to create a corridor for new tar sands lines um, through this wetlands area that's very, very protected. And, you know, all the wild rice beds that are sacred and part of the cultural integrity and cultural identity of the Anishinaabe people who I'm part of. It is a 10% expansion of the tar sands, of the Alberta tar sands. Line three alone is that. That is how important it is to 
um, the continuation of that massive man-made project um, and that I for in crater in the earth that's been created. That's larger, you know, the Alberta tar signs, you can see it from space. It's the size of England. It is shockingly devoid and of all life. You know, it's, uh, I've been there. It's a very, very painful place to visit. And yeah. So line three is the, the expansion of the tar sands industry, essentially the continuation, the, the also the survival of it. Um, it's the Enbridge's largest project in the company's history. As, as you reflect, something that was interesting in regards to this painful, um, as you reflect, speaking of painful, uh, on what this current president is doing, um, he has been, he was somehow outraged by the idea of Andrew Jackson's statue being torn down. But at the same time, as you know, from Standing Rock and many other places, um, there, there seems to be no problem with desecrating uh, indigenous and native sites. What are your thoughts about that? I've been watching the, uh, you know, the pushback to all these Confederate statues and uh, monuments to genocidal maniacs like Columbus, like Andrew Jackson, um, come down and all this pushback of, well, this is, you know, 1984 and you guys are just trying to rewrite history and knock down all the statues and citing that little quote at, at people, right? There seems to be a disconnect about the history of this place because as I understand it, there was many names for many places that are still there, right? So like you've got all of these names of counties and streets and you know, cities and states that are oftentimes bastardized names of the indigenous places and peoples who are either still there or were there. Um, so there already was a rewriting of history, right? That's already taken place. And, you know, we're in this really weird dynamic of like, you know, this pushback of, well, you're, you're, you're destroying history. No, we're, we're reminding people that we one should not be celebrating genocide and um, slavery, right? Like we just should not fundamentally as a people be doing anything even remotely like that. That is not a, um, a lesson in history. That is the celebration of inhumanity. We should teach those things. Absolutely. Our children should learn those things and they should learn them absolutely like with the totality of truth, because right now it's a very rosy picture of the U S right. But you know, in the, in the context of where we're at and as, as far as indigenous struggles go, I mean, it is still a uphill battle to explain to people that this place is sacred. You know, this is a place that we have fasted, done ceremony, lived and died on for thousands of years. And just because it doesn't look like, you know, um, a church, or it doesn't look like something that you would traditionally associate with something being quote unquote sacred doesn't mean that it doesn't have value. And it doesn't mean it's also not part of your history because it's part of the history of this place. You, you, you described, I remember reading either one of your tweets or someplace you wrote this about when you were um, obviously as, as an attorney in Washington, DC going to the white house um, for business uh, you would pass by that statue of Andrew Jackson, and it would cause you pain. 
Uh, why, why is that? At that time, I was an intern, actually, at the White House Council on Environmental Quality. Um, that was actually the first time I really kind of encountered the Keystone XL pipeline. So what a long trajectory that's been. Um, that was back in 2011. So every day when you walk through Lafayette um, Square, there's this massive statue in the middle of Andrew Jackson on a horse. Um, you know, Andrew Jackson is regarded as the quote unquote greatest Indian killer of all time. He's responsible for the Indian Removal Act, for the Trail of Tears, for um, the perpetuation of enslavement of human beings. You know, this was a person who believed that other human beings were not human. And those human beings were um, black and indigenous folks that the appropriate policy and um, law was to eradicate these people or subjugate these people. So, you know, seeing something like that when you're a young attorney at that time, I wasn't even an attorney. I was still a law student um, trying to advocate for my people and make a difference. It's, very hard to see something like that in iron and stone. Um, this monument to basically the foundations of what we're trying to, to fight against, right. That is still causes so, so much harm to many people. Powerfully put. Um, and I, I feel the same way. I don't think people understand what that means when we see black people, see the Confederate flag uh, or noose or whatever, it just, it has an impact on us, right? It just does something to our spirit and our soul. Like when I see those things, like I'll never forget back when I was an undergrad or something like that, we went on this trip and we were going, passing through Missouri and we stopped and got some food and like some people that are all in, in front of us are all, every single person in that group was wearing a Confederate flag or a Confederate hat and all the people that are, you know, around in the restaurant are, you know, the customers are black, the servers are black. And I'm just like looking at them like across the corner, like, you know what I mean? Just feeling this such empathy, like what the, you know, how can you do that to a person? Like, don't you know you're hurting them? And I'm, you probably, maybe you do, you know, maybe you intentionally did that to, to hurt somebody and it's not okay. You know, it's, it's not okay. A few, a couple, a couple, uh, months back was um, Endangered Species uh, Day. Um, and should Native and Black people be on that list? Uh, are we facing genocide? I certainly think that the uh, genocide, genocidal policies have never ended, that we face many uh, different forms of genocide through uh, structural inequity and through ongoing attempts to, um, you know, kind of keep us at, at bay at, at a minimum, right? I mean, from an indigenous lens, you know, reservations were created as these spaces that are, you know, here's the exchange. So we get the United States and you can have this little tiny space, right? Like that's, that's what a treaty is. The treaty actually gives the United States the land to be where it's at today, um, whether those documents were actually agreed to is very a, a very different conversation. But you know, so now we're on these reservations. But here's like, well, we've screwed up all these lands, but now we want that too, right? Like you guys are sitting on mineral deposits, and you're sitting on 
things that we want and we want to, you know, put through all this infrastructure that's, you know, killing the planet and killing us. Well, we'll put it by you guys. You know, it's, we, we don't want to deal with that. Um, I don't think that the, the, the mindset, it's really the, the mindset has ever changed. Um, you know, when it comes to hiring policies, hiring practices to, um, educational reform and educational access, you know, for, for black and brown communities, it's just, it is not the same, you know, and somehow like the, the things that get the biggest attention are policies like affirmative action that how many times have they tried to undo affirmative action? You know, it's, it, it, it boggles my mind. Suicide disproportionately affects indigenous communities and black communities. And actually, I just want to say, um, I just lost a friend, um, an amazing young black woman who was a writer on a TV show who committed suicide. And this one is actually lift up uh, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline uh, for those who are listening right now to 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. But in 2018, the CDC reported a suicide rate that was 3.5 times higher um, than any other racial ethnic group within indigenous communities. And this is attributed to things such as heritage of poverty, substance abuse, unemployment, all the things we've been discussing. But particularly, indigenous women also experience higher levels of violence than other U.S. women. The National Institute of Justice reported nearly 84% of indigenous women experiencing violence in their lifetime. Like many other communities of color, indigenous communities are experiencing genocide, we just discussed, from a multitude of systemic oppression. But in your opinion, Tyra, what is contributing to this level of despair or genocide, uh, you know, or what are the statistics not being, uh, are not telling? So oftentimes I ask folks that are, you know, thinking about the the national conversation if they can name a single native american newscaster if they can name a single native american actor if they can name a single native american musician um if they can name any native any even without their names any movie that has a native person in it that's not a western if they can name any native person that's not a chief, you know, that they learned about in, in, in the brief little history of native people in their education growing up. Most people are flabbergasted by that, that they cannot name any, any people in the public sphere at all. And so, you know, you ask those same people, well, can you name any sports teams that have native mascots? Yeah, we can name a couple, a couple of them easily, right? Including one in Washington, D.C. that has a racial slur for its name. So you've got that level of invisibility, which is almost next to no representation. And then on top of it, your people are systematically oppressed and um, in conditions that do not lead to economic growth, 
to the health and, and well-being of a community. That means, you know, the treaties that we signed are you have to provide us with adequate health care, with adequate education. That's the exchange for the land that you're on. Neither of those things have ever been upheld. And instead, you know, you're going to get some of the worst health care in the entire country. You are going to get, I mean, I remember when Department of Defense sent over somebody to be part of the Bureau of Indian Education. They initially thought they would be like kind of, you know, consulting and explaining like how, how DOD had done so well with its military schools, the other federally funded schools, what was going on in Indian country. Well, they came in and like, you know, we're part of uh, a bomb team inspecting because, they're, you know, for school shootings, how, do, how are these, you know, not, uh, these reservation schools doing when they respond? The bomb teams didn't want to enter the schools because they, they need, they, in their opinion, they needed to be condemned. They were unsafe to even teach in. And so, you know, that's the conditions, right? And so, and then on top of it, you're kind of viewed as this, you know, relic of, you guys still exist. You know, I I thought you, you know, I thought you guys were extinct. I've been asked that question so many times, you know, as a native person walking around in DC, like by other American citizens, right? Are you serious? I thought you guys were extinct. Oh, well, you know, I'm part Cherokee on my mom's side. I'm like, oh my God, you know, here we go again. Um, most likely you are not, sir or ma'am. Um, I bet you know nothing about Cherokee people and you uh, are claiming an identity and experience you don't understand and erasing us at the same time. So I think there's, you know, that, that overall spectrum and understanding and, and then all the other factors, right, of your water doesn't matter, your land doesn't matter, um, your lives don't matter. You know, Native people are killed at equal to sometimes we trade off black folks and native folks of who's most likely to be killed by the cops. You know, we're small sections of the population, but that's the reality. And so it's just a, it's a whole spectrum of things. And with native women, I mean, it's, there are actual legal um, institutions of, of law that native people cannot prosecute non-native offenders like any other um, state or municipality in this country. So that means a non-native offender can walk onto a reservation, rape somebody, kill somebody, and they are not going to be subject to that tribe's jurisdiction in the same way that would be if it was a state jurisdiction. That means that we have limited, you know, ability to, or a limited power to um, imprison or, you know, fine or any of those things, right? Instead, it's like this, this really um, spotty jurisdiction where the feds can take these cases on. Sometimes they do. The prosecution rate usually hovers around like, I mean, it's, it's really small, like a small, small number of cases actually get prosecuted. So like you also have the reality of we don't have an equal form of justice. We have far less and it's actually in law that we have lessened justice. And human traffickers, they know that. Fossil fuel industries that are building man camps right next to our communities that are rural and remote, they know that too. You know, it is a um, community that is targeted specifically because of those type of reasons and because they also recognize that when it comes to the police pursuing these cases, 
when it comes to black and brown and indigenous peoples, you know, what, how often are we going to get convictions? How often does the case even get investigated? You know, I mean, there's, there's places in Canada that are called the highway of tears because so many women have gone missing and murdered. There's a national inquiry that's happening because they finally realized thousands of native women had gone missing or murdered. And started to think maybe some of these cases are connected. Found a serial killer over in BC. I mean, it's it's a it's a sad state of affairs. If you're just tuning in, I am talking to the amazing Tara Hauska, who is a tribal attorney, climate activist, and the founder of the GNU Collective, and a co-founder of Not Your Mascot. And she is dropping it right now. And she is man. This is amazing. Tara, what are you doing to stay well right now? Are you indulging in any of the arts? I've noticed some spoken word and poetry on your Instagram posts. Um, what is that? What are you doing to make sure you're good? <laughs> um, I mean, honestly, like that's the, that's the other side, right? Like the other side of the equation, which is, yes, there is many horrific... Um, forms of oppression and dispossession and disenfranchisement and um, just disparity across the board. But there's also this, how do you get through it? Well, we get through it because our people are beautiful, because our people are powerful, because we are guided by our ancestors and we carry knowledge that has been passed on for thousands of years. You know, we carry um, the love of community and togetherness and, you know, for every missing and murdered Indigenous woman case that pops up, there's also a, a guarantee in that community there is a group of women and men who are out patrolling or trying to find that person or trying to pass reforms or trying to figure out how do we partner with local police officers in a, in a better way to protect our communities. There's always people that are doing that work. Um, you know, I myself, I go to a, I go to a quite a bit of ceremony. COVID-19 has been hard on that, I will say. Um, but because I've been learning for such a long time from um, both Sundance Lodge and Medewin Lodge, um, I know that ceremony is, is everywhere. It's all around us, right? It's in those moments of self-reflection in those times and spaces we take for ourselves when we are in the beauty of creation. Um, that there is so much love and, and beauty to be had. And, you know, when we're hanging out with the littles and their little chubby cheeks and things like that, like, you know, take from that and look at that and think about, you know, what, who it's for and what it's all about, like what we're trying to do. Um, yeah. And I, you know, sometimes, yeah, I'll spout off some, <laughs> some good words or some angry words or whatever they are. Um, I also, I mean, I live in the woods and that's, to me, that's ceremony almost right? Like, yes, there's a lot of mosquitoes and quite a bit of ticks, but it's, that's where I'm from. And it's very, very good to be home. Um, that's amazing. Uh, Earlier this year at the Oregon Health and Science University lecture, you spoke of decolonizing our perspective. How does one effectively decolonize their perspective? And I guess what effects can this have on policy? So earlier we were talking about uh, statues and monuments, right? Yeah. Um, you know, something I, I've been I've been thinking about as you know these conversations have been happening that needed to happen 
um, of taking down these monuments. But then the, it seems like the, the automatic response is, well, we should put some other ones up. And, you know, I, for me, that actually, I, I, I understand the intent behind that. And like, you know, the, the hope that we, um, start changing that, 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 that the fabric of that narrative. Um, but to me, I also wonder, like, you know, it, it seems like, isn't the whole idea and principle of worshiping a human being <laughs> or placing a human being on a literal pedestal, isn't that part of the actual, uh, you know, I, the problem really, you know, that we, and it, and it manifests in so many ways that, that we have put ourselves into this place where human beings are separate from nature, that we are separate from all living things, that we are different somehow, and that our goals should be oriented around um, so-called human power, you know, which oftentimes involves money, access, you know, attention, fame, all these different things. Um, to me, those, those goals are not ones that are fulfilling to a spirit. And I, I, I think that there is, um, a value shift that would greatly benefit our, our earth that we live on and, and our, and each other. Um, and that doesn't involve putting us on pedestals, but that said, I mean, I definitely understand the intent behind it and. It's, I think, uh, decolonizing a perspective is a work in a lifelong, um, goal endeavor of character growth and really trying to find the, the things that, 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 that fill a spirit and, and fill your heart. To me, that's, you know, being entrusted with knowledge, um, being entrusted with love and compassion from, fellow human beings, but also from four leggeds and, you know, wingeds and fishes and all the things, you know, living in a place of mutual respect um, and trying to do the best to contribute to that seventh generation, right. To that, the people that aren't here yet um, to the, the living beings that aren't here yet. Uh, that seems like an, an endeavor that actually does fulfill somebody. You're also the co-founder of Not Your Mascots, which is a nonprofit committed to eradicating uh, Native stereotyping. I'm excited about this right here, Tara, because um, this is not only a podcast, which happens uh, throughout the land, and you can check it out. All those who are listening can obviously go to think100climate.com to hear the podcast, but obviously live uh, on the radio as well in New York City and the great station of WBAI and in Washington, D.C. at WPFW FM. And for those listeners in Washington, D.C., they have a football team. <laughs> the, the, the Washington football team has a mascot after a derogatory term that glorifies the concept of the quote noble savage, a uh, a whitewash representation um, of the uh, American idea 
of, of Native Americans. And throughout these, not just them, obviously the Washington team, these mascots um, kind of uh, uh, overlook the genocide that has been endured by Native Americans, the theft of children, um, the, 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 the moving to certain schools, the cutting of hair, uh, the removal of lands and cultures that still even occur today. Um, um, so now that I have you here, this I, I, I've been waiting for this question, Tara. <laughs> so now that you have the airwaves of Washington, D.C., <laughs> what would you want to tell the owner of that Washington football team, uh, Daniel Snyder and others who support those kind of mascots? Honestly, I mean, based on everything I've seen that Dan Snyder has said and done in the, the many years of advocacy against the obvious and ridiculous racism perpetuated by the Washington football team, I don't know if I'd have a lot of words for him. I mean, I guess if I was in some meeting and I guess I saw him face to face, I'd probably tell him that, um, I pity him and that he really needs to rethink what his impact is to other human beings in this world. Um, that, you know, his mascot that he, the fact that we're even saying his mascot, right? Like, I mean, that the mascot of his team and the name of his team has documented effects on native and non-native children that a racial stereotype is never okay. No matter what the intent is, the outcome is harmful. Um, you know, that the conversation and, and to, to people generally, the conversation around mascots, you know, there's been polls of racism. I mean, polling racism, like just the concept of that is so offensive, you know, like that you have to get permission or so many people have to be offended by something for an obvious racial stereotype to not be okay. Like I, no other community has that experience. Like they're not going out into black and Latino communities being like, Hey, do you think this is racist? Or, uh, you know, like we want to get a sense of it because if there's not enough of you that say it is, we're going to keep using it. You know what I mean? Like, what are you talking about? That's like, you should know that dressing up as another race of people is not okay. You should know that when a group of people like native American people who have been put through multiple genocides in the history of this country, who were at in the 1960s at that time, we were still trying to pass the Indian Child Welfare Act, which is a law to stop the, or at least try to curb the open and blatant theft of our children from our households. Um, you know, that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Native American families were forcefully separated by the state, by adoptive agencies, by all, by federal efforts to eradicate Native people, that we were at that point where we were still fighting for, for those laws to protect our own families. And there were still people that went out and were protesting the Washington football team and other Native mascots at that time. That's how important it is. That's how foundationally um, critical that element is. Um, that that's when we began fighting the Washington football team was back in the 1960s. So this is a multi-generational fight. Um, 
that Native people have been pushing back and saying, like, hey, I do not wear me as a costume. Do not, I am not a mascot. I am not for your entertainment. I am still here. We are still here. Native people are still here. Um, and it's not just about offensiveness. It's about recognizing the humanity of a, of a living people. You know, we are not vanquished warriors. We are not romanticized parts, pieces of American history. We are existing living people. Um, yeah, I, it should have been a no-brainer when we when when they came out with the studies showing that stereotypes harm kids. It should have been a no-brainer then, but we've still been fighting it ever since. Well, I can tell you, my mom um, actually used to be a fan of the Washington uh, football team, and she stopped. She's changed teams because <laughs> literally she was like no longer. Um, so I was that maybe I, I, I was never a fan, but. But she was a fan for a little bit, and and because of because of that, um, not seeing them, not wanting to change the name and the work actually that you're doing around not your mascots and others are doing, um, had her change teams. Literally got rid of all that Washington gear and got all new gear. <laughs> so that was that was her that was her thing. Um, and, but I hope many more people actually do that. We, we, in this climate of tearing down statues and tearing down monuments, I think that that is something that has to change because it has an impact. Um, Tyra, I know you personally actually went through something and you actually were in the news, were all over the news at the beginning of this year, seems so long ago, actually, but- in January, when you were going through a Minnesota airport, a TSA agent said she needed to pat down your braids. She then proceeded to pull your braids behind your shoulders like reins before laughing and saying, giddy up. Um, what's your thoughts? Where are you now? Now that that has kind of been about six months or some, what are your thoughts now? on that incident and where, and where is, and what happened because of that? Dang, that does feel like a long time ago, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. It, it does. Oh yeah, that did happen. Um, <laughs> of all people to do that to, I would say, uh, it was probably both, a. to me it sucked, but at the same time, I guess I'm, if it had to be somebody like I am, I'm glad in some ways it was me cause I had some type of platform to say something. Um, I'm sure that person probably might've done that to somebody else or probably already had done that to somebody else. Um, but I also am fully aware of the fact that like, you know, when that happened, um, I had other native people reach out and tell me, you know, the crappy things that had happened to them at airports when they'd been, you know, treated like called chief or whatever, or Pocahontas and, had their stuff rifled through or like, you know, had these really awkward, weird questions or weird touching. And, you know, um, I've, def I've definitely personally had like sacred items, you know, when I'm going out to Sundance or whatever, um, mishandled or treated like, you know, like a plaything. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, at, at the time, like I was, I was very shocked when that happened. Um, just because it was so offensive uh that i was i actually was like genuine like genuinely shocked um 
the the woman who did that did not realize that I was so because I was like that is not okay you know and she was like still laughing I was like no like you need to understand like that is not okay and she kind of figured it out at that point I think um that I was offended and she's like you know oh I'm sorry and I was like no you need to and I like walked away or whatever um but yeah that whole thing just happened because I tweeted at the because I've tweeted at the airport before and at airlines before when they've been doing things that aren't cool. Um, and it's not the first time I've had my hair mishandled by a TSA or airline agent before. And by the time I landed in my destination, uh, you know, at our, our, the local news had reached out because that was what they saw as a story. And then it ended up going everywhere. That was very strange to see my hair in the news. It was like, you should, could you guys cover line three too while we're at it? Like, you know, the destruction of my <laughs> Like there are like granted, like that wasn't a great thing. And it was like very like, I think it was a thing where a lot of people could understand and feel like, you know, really upset by that, you know, because a lot of people don't like TSA and they've been through their own experiences. And so maybe it was like easier to get um and to feel empathy with me or whatever. But I'm like, you know, about those other things. <laughs> like, <laughs> our drinking water like that's really important too (laughs) (laughs) oh man that's so funny um and at the same time i guess were you arrested at the shutout fighter friday Uh, were you arrested at the fighter friday in january or do you just or do you just were um the i guess the last one they had in dc i'm not sure if you were arrested or you were just speaking um i got i got arrested with um Joaquin Phoenix and Naomi. Yeah. Clark. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. I thought because I got arrested this because me and Bill also got arrested, but Bill had us actually go to a bank. Yeah. So we got I to go there with you guys, and like I was super sad about that, but then like we ended up getting put over no. here. I mean, Jane was like, "No, you stand no. right here." I was like, "Okay, I'll stand right here." <laughs> Nah, don't be sad. Cause listen, I, I, you know, when you get arrested in DC, you get to Capitol Hill where they kind of put you a little the processing, and you know, you get a little pay, you get to pay your fine, or you know, it's a little inconvenient. You go, you are in a bank, so you, there's the Capitol Hill and there's the other Capitol, <laughs> and the other Capitol. Yeah. We went, we went to jail, jail. <laughs> we was, we was in DC Central. They, they locked us up for the day. Um, so that's the one thing about it's either politics or or money. We get to see which one they fear most in this country. Oh, and we would I mean to be clear, because Joaquin Phoenix was there, and I know that's why, they didn't even put zip ties on us. You know what I mean? Like they were oh, so man. so polite and so nice. And then you compare <laughs> that with contrast that with when I was arrested in North Dakota for like Standing Rock, you know, protests. That was a dog kennel, you know, that we were put into. Oh my you know, strip searched in some like tiny little back off and like oh, told the like bought and cough. I mean, completely different experience. Or here in even in Minneapolis, you know, with the George Floyd demonstrations and Black Lives Matter, I mean, you know, being put into we didn't even get to go to an actual jail cell. We got put into holding tanks, a series of holding tanks for fifteen hours. Oh. Oh, you know, man. and I directly in the face. I mean, completely different when you have some celebrity and some person of perceived power, the experience is far different. <laughs> far, far different. Well, I'll, I'll know that next time. I guess Bill didn't have the clout. <laughs> well, I was thinking, I'm with Bill. I should know Bill McKibben. 
<laughs> hey, like, no, y'all going to hold His arresting officer, Joaquin Chase's arresting officer, straight up said, before this happens, I just want to, like, say, sir, that I really appreciated your last movie. And I'm like, what the, what? <laughs> Are you serious? And his last movie is The Joker. You know what I mean? The Joker that's <laughs> you know, disenfranchisement from the system and, like, how it, like, I mean, that's what I saw, how it hurts, hurts people and leaves people into, like, you know, just leaves people behind. Oh, that's too funny. Oh, my goodness. So for folks that know, we were we were protesting. Uh, it was around Stop the Money Pipeline. Why we were in jail uh, <laughs> that day. Um, tell people, what is Stop the Money Pipeline, Tara? Yeah, Stop the Money Pipeline is a coalition of different groups and organizations who have been engaged in um, fossil fuel finance campaigning. So we've been basically in our various capacities, all targeting the the fossil fuel industry, specifically at the banking level, the insurance level, the shareholder level. Um, So trying to stop that flow of money into these projects before they're built or trying to remove um, and divest funding from fossil fuels into other forms of renewable energy or into community investment or all the, all the other good things that are not um, the destruction of our, our only home. And so Stop the Money Pipeline is just a whole bunch of folks that finally got together and um, has fossil fuel finance campaigning has been pretty powerful over the last few years, especially since the Standing Rock uh, demonstrations when we started going and shutting down bank branches all over the country. You know, it got this kind of boost of energy uh, from a decades long effort in largely colleges, actually to pull trustee funds and things like that out of, out of the fossil fuel industry. So yeah, it's a bunch of people getting together and trying to stop money from flowing into fossil fuels. No, that's amazing. And folks can actually go to stopthemoneypipeline.com to get more information. Tara, I just have two questions for you. Thank, first of all, thank you for your time. You, I said before, you are like a superhero to me when I see you out and about. And I just thank you for what you're doing with your, your energy and just your life. Um, and just how, how, how you conduct yourself is just so powerful. Um, so anyway, these are my last two questions for you. And we kind of hit this earlier, but I want to make sure people kind of understood what they could do. Um, I know in the past you've posted and discussed um, about the violence against indigenous women. And you have said that, quote, violence and silence are as pervasive as the systems we fight, end quote. So... How can we, how can people support Indigenous women? And also, how can we help raise awareness? A couple of different things on that front. I would say, you know, there is this reality of um, tribal nations being uh, in this relationship with the federal government. We have a trust responsibility that's established between the two. So, there is a reality that Congress has a um, can have a great deal of influence on tribal nations all across the country, um, and we really, really need congressional fixes to the existing laws as they stand. So, having your congresspersons fully educated about and understanding why this is so important to have these jurisdictional fixes for Indian country. Um, that would be so helpful. You know, I mean, there, there are always attempts to try to get these fixes through. Um, 
you know, if you go to NCAI, the National Congress of American Indians, if you go to NIWRC, the National Indian Women's Resource Center, um, there's places to, to follow efforts around that. Usually, you know, the VAWA Violence Against Women Act reauthorization. Um, there's been some temp, like kind of like partial fixes to the issue, but you know, most congresspersons are very, very uneducated about Native issues, period. Um, I think there's also, you know, at a at a state level, um, you know, pushing local officials to ensure that they are both upholding the sovereign rights of Native nations within the territory and that, you know, the the programming and, and things like that for um, Native peoples is is there and that um, protection, that level of protection is there because when it comes to native people, remember, remember like 70% of native people are off reservation. They're in urban centers. There was a whole period of time called the relocation uh, period when the, the, the feds tried to get rid of us like that. They tried to put us into cities and assuming we would be blended out. Um, so a lot of us are in cities. Um, there's a really great, uh, Institute over in Seattle that's done a lot of work around specifically urban Indians um, and urban women. Um, the Urban Indian Health Institute in Seattle has done a report on missing and murdered Indigenous women specifically in Seattle and in urban places. They're, they've been pushing really hard to get Native women even tracked because they're not even tracked in the U.S. So we actually don't really know the full extent of the problem. So my last question um to you, and thank you so much again for your time. Um, at the end of all of this, where we are, um, can we win? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't, I don't ever doubt that that's a that's a reality that we can create together. You know, it's. I think uh, working in specifically the 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 kind of the kind of reality we work in of the environment and of climate science and climate crisis. Yeah, it can be pretty de- upsetting and depressing, right? Like it, it really can. Um, that this whole system is just clicking along while uh, there is, you know, a, a handful of people in the world that are trying really, really, really hard to to stop all these cracks that are just forming larger and larger and larger. Um, at the same time, I would say, you know. Th- it, there is so much beauty that comes from our togetherness and from these uh, mobilizations of people, but also from these powerful land defenders who are across the world that are standing, holding the line. Um, And from the youth that are trying to create a different world, right? Like they're talking a completely different language, I think, than we were a generation ago. Um, That they're already talking about, you know, anti-capitalism, anti-colonialism, decolonizing, um, you know, centering black and brown voices and impacted communities, you know, at the age of like 14, 13, they're saying these things, right? And rather than just, you know, conforming and saying, no, we're going to, we're going to fall through the system and we're going to do change from within and reform and blah, blah, blah. No, it's a much more nuanced perspective, right? Of, no, I want to build a different world that's actually equitable to everyone. Um, I think that regardless of the science and regardless of whether human beings are able to turn our own ship around because it's about our survival, right? The earth will be fine. 
um, ultimately it will be fine. Um, that we still can create a beautiful world together in this time that we have. Um, you know, my understanding as a native woman is that we've been wiped out a couple different times for falling out of balance with all of creation. And I would say we are deeply out of balance at this time. Um, but that doesn't mean that we don't have incredible talent and beauty and love that we can collaborate and build something together. Um, yeah, of, of course, we can. of course we can. Amen to that. Amen to that. Tara, if folks want to find you, how can they find you? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter if you would like. Uh, just Google, but just, I guess, search Tara Hauska. My, my indigenous name is Jabuikwe. Um, otherwise, uh, GNU Collective, we have a Facebook page and an Instagram. Been working on a, trying to put together a website. I'm not really a web person. I, I live in the woods, you know? <laughs> But uh, yeah, appreciate the the time. Also, please visit stopline3.org to learn more about our our fight for for our protection of our homelands here in Minnesota. Oh man, thank you. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think100Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a nonprofit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people.